You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalog. I'm your host, Moxie Labouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was growing pains. And now, our feature presentation. There exists a small deserted town which has been seized by eminent domain and condemned en masse by the state. Why would an entire town that once housed over a thousand residents be shuttered? Because the ground under their feet was on fire. More accurately, the coal veins that ran under the town and through the surrounding region as deep as 300 feet or 90 meters. This disaster wasn't in some far-flung corner of the globe but less than an hour and a half from the Pennsylvania state capital of Harrisburg. A fire in a coal mine spread through the rich seams of anthracite, and the resulting fire has burned continuously since May 27, 1962. At its current rate, it could continue to burn for over 250 years. Equidistant to Washington, D.C. and New York City, and in its 56th year, this calamity should be as common knowledge as any hurricane but few people have ever heard of the town of Centralia or the other disasters on the program today. My name is Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As of the time of this recording, it's been 22 months that protesters have been physically trying to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline from endangering the water supply of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, to say nothing of desecrating hallowed grounds. A leak in the pipeline would have an immediate and catastrophic effect on people who already struggle with access to clean water. If it were to happen, it would hardly be the first ecological disaster inflicted on Native American communities by the behemoth chimera of industrialization and capitalism. Eighteen hours' drive south-southwest and four decades in the past, the Navajo Nation was being poisoned not by errant oil, but radioactive waste. Shortly before dawn on July 16, 1979, a 20-foot breach formed in a wall of United Nuclear Corporation's Church Rock Uranium Mill Waste Disposal Pond, and 1,100 tons of solid radioactive mill waste and approximately 93 million gallons of acidic radioactive waste solution flowed into Pipeline Arroyo, a tributary of the Poroco River, which local residents, mostly Navajos, used for irrigation and watering livestock. The waste solution, or tailings as it's called in the mining industry, had a pH of 1.2 and contained radioactive uranium, thorium, radium, polonium, metals including cadmium, aluminum, magnesium, manganese, molybdenum, 
nickel, selenium, sodium, vanadium, zinc, iron, lead, and high concentrations of sulfates. A temporary dike was erected within a few hours, but by then the contamination had flowed 80 miles through Gallup, New Mexico, and as far as Navajo County, Arizona. The flood backed up sewers, affected nearby aquifers, and left stagnating, contaminated pools on the riverside. The Indian Health Service and the Environmental Improvement Division of New Mexico tried to warn residents of the danger over the radio and with signs, but many Navajo in the area didn't speak English or couldn't read and were unaware of the dangers of the radiation. Representatives of the United Nuclear Corporation were dispatched to warn Navajo-speaking residents downstream in accordance with the state contingency plan, but not until days later. The Navajo Nation asked the governor of New Mexico to request disaster assistance from the U.S. government and have the site declared a disaster area, but the governor refused. This greatly limited disaster relief assistance available to the Navajo Nation. The New Mexico Environmental Improvement Division said the spill's quote, short-term and long-term impacts on people and the environment were quite limited. United Nuclear denied claims that the spill caused livestock deaths. The mill would resume operations less than four months later. This further contaminated the groundwater and resulted in the mill site's placement on the EPA's national priorities list in 1983. United Nuclear made a $500,000 out-of-court settlement with the Navajo Nation a year after the spill. In terms of the amount of radioactivity released, the accident was larger in magnitude than that of Three Mile Island the same year, but received less media coverage, likely because it occurred in a lightly populated rural area. Some suggest there were elements of class and racism to that neglect as well, since it affected primarily poor Native Americans. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission itself said, quote, The event was more significant from an environmental perspective than from a human one, and thus it does not consider Church Rock to be the larger incident. Americans tend to think of Canada as a quiet, polite, clean place where bad things simply don't happen. That's because they don't know about the explosion that rocks Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1917 killing 2,000, injuring 9,000 more, and releasing the energy equivalent of roughly 2.9 kilotons of TNT, or 12,000 gigajoules, one quarter of the magnitude of the little boy atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And all of it could have been avoided if everyone had stayed in their own lane. The large deepwater harbor of Halifax was the closest North American port to Europe, making it essential for shipping supplies for both combat and humanitarian aid during World War I. Ships would shelter overnight in Bedford Basin before setting out across the dangerous North Atlantic. At its narrowest point, the harbor was less than a third of a mile or half a kilometer across, requiring incoming ships to travel very strictly on the east side and outgoing ships on the west side. The harbor was also strung with anti-submarine nets each evening. If a ship didn't make it into the bay before this curfew, it would have to spend the night in open water. The French cargo ship, the Mont Blanc, was one such ship. Its hold was loaded with 2,000 tons of high explosives, and it carried over 2,000 barrels of highly flammable benzene on its deck. But it flew no warning flags. There was a war on, after all, and that rule had been obviated to avoid making supply ships easy targets for the enemy. The Mont Blanc was anxious to get into the bay, while inside, a Norwegian freighter, the IMO, was anxious to leave, 
having been delayed a day by refueling. As the IMO set out, it passed the U.S. Clara, which was traveling in the wrong lane, forcing the IMO to also move into the oncoming lane to avoid collision. The Clara was followed by a tugboat with two barges, precluding the IMO from correcting course. This put the IMO directly in the path of the Mont Blanc as both reached the narrowest part of the harbor. The Mont Blanc sounded its whistle to order the IMO back to its proper channel. The IMO whistled back that it would hold its present course. At the last moment, the Mont Blanc tried to turn sharply, while the IMO threw its engines into reverse, which caused its bow to turn in front of the Mont Blanc. Collision was now inevitable. Sparks from the collision ignited the barrels of benzene on the deck of the Mont Blanc, which had toppled in the crash. As the fire spread uncontrollably, the crew abandoned ship, and the vessel began to drift toward the city. Unaware of how serious the situation was, people on the shore gathered to gawk. No one could hear the fleeing sailors screaming at them that the ship was about to explode. A nearby vessel sent crewmen on a small boat to try to help. The tugboat that the IMO had dodged returned in hopes of pulling the burning ship back out into the water and away from the wooden pier. But there was no time. The center of the explosion saw temperatures 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 5,000 degrees Celsius, and pressures of thousands of atmospheres at the moment of detonation. White-hot shards of iron fell down upon Halifax and across the harbor in Dartmouth. The blast wave, which traveled 23 times the speed of sound and could be felt 100 miles or 180 kilometers away, flattened nearly every building within a half-mile or 800-meter radius. Larger brick buildings, like the Acadia Sugar Refinery, collapsed, killing those inside. Pieces of the Mont Blanc were recovered more than three miles or five kilometers away. The shank of her anchor, weighing half a ton, landed two miles or three kilometers away. Smaller fires started throughout the city, owing to lamps and stoves knocked over by the blast wave. The explosion was so massive that the seafloor was momentarily exposed. When the water surged back, the tsunami it created tossed ships aground, including the IMO, and wiped out the entire community of Mi'kmaq First Nation who lived on the far side of the harbor. 16,000 died instantly, and around 300 died soon after from their injuries. The death toll could have been higher had it not been for rail dispatcher Patrick Coleman, operating at the yard near the pier where the explosion occurred. He and a co-worker learned of the dangerous cargo aboard the burning Mont Blanc and began to flee, but Coleman remembered that an incoming passenger train was due to arrive within minutes. He returned to his post and continued to send out urgent telegraph messages to stop the train, until the blast struck, killing him. Several variations of the message have been reported, among them this from the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. Hold up the train. Ammunition ship afire in harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books.
on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to them, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The Halifax explosion was the largest man-made explosion until the nuclear bomb. But mankind can't hold a candle to the destructive forces of Mother Earth. Weather-related emergencies usually give at least some warning, but no such mercy comes with earthquakes. The Great Earthquake of San Francisco in 1906 took the lives of 3,000 of the city's 400,000 residents. The deadliest earthquake on record killed twice that many people. Not twice the 3,000 dead, twice the 400,000. On a January morning in 1556, an area 250 miles or 840 kilometers wide in eastern China was destroyed. In some provinces, there were more dead than there were living to bury them, with as much as 60% of the population killed. The Shanxi earthquake's epicenter was in the Wei River Valley in Shanxi province. Every single building and home was demolished, killing more than half the residents of the city. Though the quake lasted only seconds, it leveled mountains, altered the path of rivers, caused massive floodings, and ignited fires that burned for days. It also triggered landslides which contributed to the massive death toll. Aftershocks would continue several times a month through the summer. The cost of damage done by the earthquake is impossible to measure in modern times. The death toll, however, has traditionally been given as 820,000 to 830,000 people, although some sources claim that it may be as high as 1 million. One reason for the high death toll was not only the population density of the region, but the way in which people made their homes. Like the Pueblo tribe of Native Americans, the people made their homes in caves called Yaodongs. The cliffs in the region were comprised largely of loss, loosely compacted deposits of wind-blown sediment. It was easy to excavate, but also tragically brittle. This does not mean that people have avoided cave dwellings since the earthquake. Over 30 million Chinese people currently make their homes in caves, according to a recent report by the Los Angeles Times. Modern estimates, based on geological data, give the earthquake a magnitude of approximately 8 on the moment magnitude scale, which replaced the Richter scale in the 1970s. Though it's not the strongest earthquake ever measured, it is the third most deadly natural disaster in recorded history. China has the dire distinction of also being home to the first and second most deadly, both of them floods of the Yellow River. The Mother River is prone to flooding due to the elevated nature of the river running between dikes above the broad plains surrounding it. It is generally thought that the dikes of Huiyangkui in Henan province broke in 1887. 
Owing to the low plains, the flood spread very quickly through northern China, covering an estimated 50,000 square miles or 130,000 square kilometers. Two million were left homeless. The resulting pandemic and lack of basic essentials claimed as many lives as those lost directly to the flood. It was the worst flood in history until 1931. Two years of drought, followed by the runoff of heavy winter snows and torrential spring rains caused the Yellow River to flood again, this time killing as many as four million people between the event itself and the aftermath of deprivation and disease. While these floods have been well documented, another flood was actively suppressed by the government, only recently coming to public awareness. What may have been the deadliest structural failure of all time occurred in an era when the state quickly covered the scale of such catastrophes. Even in China, unless a person lived through it, they are unlikely to have heard of the Bankiao Dam failure. On the night of August 8, 1975, a line of people frantically piled sandbags atop Henan Province's Bankiao Dam. The worst storm ever recorded relentlessly battered the region. They were in a race with the rapidly rising Ru River to save the dam and the millions of people that lay sleeping downstream. No sooner had the rain stopped and a glimmer of hope began to shine than the equivalent of 280,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools burst through the crumbling dam, taking with it entire towns and as many as 171,000 lives. 11 million people would be displaced. The dam was completed in 1952 as part of a campaign to harness the Huai River and its tributaries after severe flooding in previous years, as well as to provide hydroelectricity. From the 50s to the 70s, about 87,000 reservoirs were built across the country. Over 100 dams and reservoirs would be built in Xuemadian Prefecture alone. The campaign was held up as a national model to, quote, give primacy to water accumulation for irrigation when the Great Leap Forward began in 1958. The Great Leap Forward was a campaign led by Chairman Mao Zedong to transform the country from an agrarian economy into a socialist society through rapid industrialization and collectivization. It is widely considered to have caused the Great Chinese Famine, the death toll of which was 15 million people if you believe the Chinese government and as many as 30 million if you believe scholars from other countries. Design and construction standards were not high, despite the government's enthusiasm. Cracks in the dam and sluice gates appeared after completion due to construction and engineering errors. They were repaired with advice from Soviet engineers, and the new design, dubbed the Iron Dam, was considered unbreakable. As is the formula for every Hollywood disaster movie, a scientist tried to warn the government. A hydrologist named Chen Xing counseled that an overbuilding of dams and reservoirs would raise the water table in Henan beyond safe levels and lead to problems greater than the one they were trying to solve. The dams also created reservoirs that claimed huge tracts of land previously reserved for flood diversion. During the storm, some requests to open the dam to relieve pressure were denied due to flooding downstream. Some requests never arrived at all due to communication failures. The government maintained that the weather was to blame for the dam's failure, owing to a typhoon colliding with a cold front, which caused what they dubbed to be a once-in-2,000-year rain. A year's worth of rain fell in 24 hours. Sixty-two other dams failed during this same storm. 
When Bankyao Dam failed, the water released formed a wave 6 miles or 10 kilometers wide, rushing at over 30 miles or 50 kilometers per hour, and creating temporary lakes as large as 4,600 square miles or 12,000 square kilometers. Communications issues also plagued evacuation orders. Telegraphs failed, signal flares were misunderstood, telephones were rare, and some messengers were caught by the flood. A 2005 book compiled by the Archives Bureau of Sweeping County reports that more than 230,000 were carried away by the water, in which 18,869 died. After the flood, a Summit of National Flood Prevention and Reservoir Security was held by the Department of Water Conservancy and Electricity at Shenzhou, and a nationwide reservoir security examination was performed. Chen Xing, the hydrologist who tried to warn them, was brought onto the project. From the most catastrophic dam failure, we travel west to the worst non-nuclear industrial accident. While people in the poorest neighborhoods of Bhopal in Madhya Pradesh, India slept, on December 2, 1984, a leak at the United Carbide India Limited pesticide plant exposed over 500,000 people to methyl isocyanate gas, or MIC, and other chemicals. The cause of the failure remains under debate. The Indian government and local activists argued that slack management and deferred maintenance created a situation where routine pipe maintenance caused a backflow of water into an MIC tank, triggering the disaster. Union Carbide Corporation contends water entered the tank through an act of sabotage. Though the citizens were caught unaware, the same should not be said for Union Carbide. A number of safety incidents had occurred since the plant opened. In 1976, two local trade unions complained of pollution within the plant. In 1981, a worker was accidentally splashed with phosgene and died 72 hours later from inhaling the gas. In January 1982, a phosgene leak exposed 24 workers, all of whom were admitted to the hospital, none of whom had been ordered to wear protective masks. One month later, in February, an MIC leak affected 18 workers. Twice in 1982, chemical engineers were injured by liquid MIC, one of whom suffered burns to 30% of his body. During 1983 and 84, there were leaks of MIC, chlorine, monomethalamine, phosgene, and carbon tetrachloride, sometimes in combination. Prior to the leak, many of the plant's MIC-related safety systems were not functioning. Valves and lines were in poor condition. Several vent gas scrubbers had been out of service, as well as the steam boiler intended to clean the pipes. By whatever means, water got into one of the MIC holding tanks, which began an unstoppable exothermic reaction, accelerated by contaminants, high temperature, and the presence of iron from corroding pipes. The pressure in the tank doubled in half an hour, though engineers assumed it was a faulty gauge. It took 75 minutes for the first leak to be found, and even longer before anything was done, because it was time for the engineer's 15-minute tea break. By then, the pressure had quadrupled, and the temperature was too high to read. At least three safety systems should have stopped the gas from being vented into the atmosphere, but none of them were functional. 30 metric tons of methyl isocyanate escaped from the tank in the first hour, with an additional 10 metric tons in the following hour. Estimates vary on the death toll. The official immediate death toll was 2,259. 
The government of Madhya Pradesh confirmed a total of 3,787 deaths related to the gas release. A government affidavit in 2006 stated that the gas leak caused over 550,000 injuries, including over 38,000 temporary partial injuries and approximately 4,000 severely permanently disabling injuries. Others estimate that 8,000 died within two weeks and another 8,000 or more have died since from gas-related diseases. Civil and criminal cases were filed in the District Court of Bhopal, India involving United Carbide Corporation and Warren Anderson, United Carbide CEO at the time of the disaster. In June 2010, 26 years after the incident, seven former employees, including the former United Carbide India Limited chairman, were convicted of causing death by negligence and sentenced to two years imprisonment and a fine of about $2,000 each, the maximum punishment allowed by Indian law. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. This was a heavy one, I know. It's hard to think about how fragile and vulnerable our lives are, how hundreds and even thousands of them can be snuffed out without causing a blip in the wider world. But it's not all gloom and doom. There's so much to uplift us. Otters hold hands so they don't drift apart in their sleep. Jim Cummings, the voice of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, calls children's hospitals in his spare time to cheer up the sick kids. A group of flamingos is called a flamboyance, a group of pugs is called a grumble, and a group of bunnies is a fluffle. There's a penguin in Norway who's been knighted into the King's Guard. And if you're at your computer, head over to SpaceJam.com. The original website is still there from 1996. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.